All right, I have a ton to talk about today. Uh, that's exciting for me, and I hope that it will be great for you as well. Um, I want to start with the premise that the middle is the hardest part. The middle is the hardest part. Uh, we're pretty good at starting. We love new beginnings. Uh, we're into New Year's resolutions. We sign up for 40-day for, for boot camps, those kinds of things. Our priorities are often most organized at the beginning of the school year. We like launches. We, are, we have a lot of access to inspiration and equipping when it comes to starting things. We set goals. We like mission statements. Think about the excitement surrounding a wedding. Think about the level of intentionality surrounding the birth of your first child. Right? There was no lack of motivation going on in your life at that point, right? There was no difficulty in getting focused at that point. We are pretty good at starting. We're also pretty good at ending. We are. We're pretty good at ending. We often get a new sense of perspective and purpose as we near the end. My parenting is better when I remember that my oldest goes to college in 90 days. I get a new burst of energy and focus and purpose when I realize there's only 90 seconds left in a workout. I'm almost done, right? I get this new surge of energy. We can focus at the end. We see the bigger picture at the end. We understand the purpose more clearly at the end, but the middle, oh man, the middle is hard. The middle is really hard. The middle of the toddler years is hard, right? When you're needed for everything, you are constantly active. You can't finish a sentence with another adult without being interrupted. It feels like you've been changing diapers forever. It feels like you're going to change diapers forever. It's never going to end. You're in the middle, and that's really challenging. The middle of marriage can be hard. When there have been hurts, there have been unrealized hopes. You're not necessarily very daily, consciously aware of those wonderful things that drew you and attracted you to this person because it's been a long time because you're in the middle of the marriage. The middle of a career can be hard when you fall into similar ruts. Now you've got a routine. It's not challenging anymore, and yet the end is still a couple decades away because you're in the middle of the career. The middle is hard, and people have taken note of this. There's the seven-year itch. There's the midlife crisis. There's what's new, nothing. Same old stuff, different day, right? The middle is hard. Friends, the middle is where we lose our way. The middle is where we get lost. There's a theme in the writings of John, one of Jesus' apostles. John is credited with writing a gospel, that is, an account of the life and teachings of Jesus. Three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, creatively named. And this political apocalyptic, prophetic vision at the end of the Bible called the Revelation. And one of the themes in John's writing is perseverance, is making it to the end, or put differently, is getting through the middle. Um, John is often encouraging his readers to persevere because the middle is hard. For instance, last Sunday, we looked at the end of John chapter 16, when John records Jesus as saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now that word overcome, it appears 24 times in the New Testament. 22 of those times 
are in the writings of John. Did you know that John is the only one of Jesus' 12 apostles that was not killed in so-called middle of their life? John lives a long, full life, probably about 90 years. And it's really interesting that this man who follows Jesus for so long writes over and over again about overcoming, about getting through the struggle in the middle. Friends, some people's journeys of faith make them experts on certain aspects of the life of faith. Say that again. Some people's journeys of faith make them experts at certain dynamics, aspects of the life of faith. Today, I want to take a closer look at the struggle in the middle, and I want to learn from the best wisdom on this topic. Some of the best writings about Christian spirituality in general are from the uh, desert fathers and mothers. These are people who in the second, third, and fourth centuries went out and lived in the desert as hermits all by themselves, sometimes in these sort of generally associated with uh, communities. These were people who went all in on the spiritual struggle. That's all they did. And so they became experts at the nuances of prayer, at the fine points of temptation. These were like the professional athletes of Christianity. They make much of what we do kind of look like a hobby because it was all they did. Like many professionals, they honed their craft. They worked at perfecting the details of the life of faith that many of us haven't even thought about. And a common observation of the desert fathers and mothers is that it gets harder in the middle. It's harder to stick with it in the middle. For instance, they commonly noted that the hardest part of the day was the middle of the day. They would refer to the new grace in the morning, this rest that comes uh, in the evening, but in the middle of the day, in the heat, in the monotony, that's the hardest part. That's when our power lags, that's when our energy sags, that's when we need a snack, that's when we feel distracted by things. Early monks observed that that's when temptations raged, was right in the middle of the day, because the middle of the day is hard. It's so hard, it's so difficult, it sometimes feels like an unwanted visitor who introduces themselves to you again in the middle of the day. And they even had a name for it. They even personified this force, this energy of, of temptation. Do you know what they called it? They called it the noonday devil. Yeah. So I'm going to talk more about that in a second. We're a couple weeks into our Easter series. This is the third Sunday of the season of Easter. The series is called Triumph. We're looking at the theological ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how Jesus' triumph over death serves or can serve as a lens through which to see life and also as a map with which to navigate life. We're looking at several ways that Jesus' resurrection shapes how we see and how we live life. We're trying to push this towards the practical, push this massive doctrine of resurrection towards the practical. Last, sun last Sunday's sermon was called Peace Over Adversity. And we looked at John 16, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Today's sermon is called Joy Over Acedia. What is acedia? Well, that's what I was, that's what I was starting to tell you. Uh, let's start with Psalm 91, very bottom of page 413, Psalm 91. This is a song or a prayer written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And the psalm is all about the protection of God. I'll read the first part, and then I'll put a couple verses on the screen. It begins this way. 
Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. Pestilence is like an illness or a plague. He will cover you with his feathers. This is not literal, right? This is poetic, lyrical language. It's not a, it's not a bird, but there's metaphorically, God will cover you with his feathers. Under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. And here's what I want to focus on, verse 6, nor the plague that destroys at midday. So Psalm 91, like all of the Psalms in the Old Testament, was originally written in Hebrew, and so that phrase, plague that destroys at midday, of course, is an English translation of a Hebrew word that means some kind of destructive force, like a hailstorm or a plague. The word is challenging to translate because its root is unknown. It is some kind of powerful force that is destructive in nature. Like weather, where does it, and the origin is not known. Like weather, where does weather actually begin? Like an illness, when did that actually get started? Here's some fascinating Bible translation history for you. Doesn't that sound good? This is, this is the stuff that wakes you up in the morning. Bible translation history. Psalm 9, I love this stuff. Psalm 91 is an ancient poem, right? Written in Hebrew, by Hebrews, for Hebrews, for hundreds of years, we read this psalm as Jewish people in our native language, Hebrew. And like the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, we call that the Old Testament. This is only experienced in Hebrew until about 250 years before Christ, when a Greek king, a descendant of Alexander the Great, takes over this area of Egypt and decides he's going to build the biggest library in the world. And he's going to translate all the books into Greek, like you do, right? And so he finds 72 Hebrew scholars, 72 Jewish scholars, invites them to an island resort and challenges them to translate their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, into Greek. And they do it. And so they create a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's called the Septuagint which means 70. It's in reference to the 72 translators or scholars. It's referred to in your Bible. Sometimes you'll see a footnote that says LXX. Those are the Roman numerals, 70. Like this word in the, in the Septuagint is, is a little, little bit different. What's really interesting is that this is the translation of scriptures that was available to and used by Jesus and the early church and the first Christian monks. So today's English translations of the Old Testament, the one that you're holding in your hand, that's a direct translation from the Hebrew because now we have these ancient Hebrew manuscripts. But for like a thousand years, Christians read the Old Testament in Greek. Their translation was the Septuagint, this Greek translation. And the Septuagint translates Psalm 91.6, not as the plague that destroys at midday, but as the evil spirit at noon. In other words, the noonday devil. And so in some of the earliest writings of the, of the spiritual life written by Christians, women and men like us 
who were struggling to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus, who were trying to see life through the lens of the resurrection, who were trying to navigate life um, with, through the adversities of life according to the truth of the resurrection, there was this repeated reference to the struggle in the middle, to this destructive force that comes in the middle, like boredom that comes in the middle of life, like a sadness or a despair that hits in the middle of a long season of grief, like the apathy that sometimes sneaks into a long relationship with a spouse or a long relationship with God, like the temptation to just walk away from it all that sometimes just suddenly descends upon you in the middle of the day, like apparently out of nowhere. They refer to that as the noonday devil, right out of Psalm 91. This personification of this midday destructive force as this devil that comes around about noon and has resonated with people for generations. Johnny Cash sings about the noonday devil, right? It's been kind of in this cultural vernacular for so long because it feels very much like a spiritual force of destruction that seems to know your weakness, that seems to know your vulnerability in a crazy way, really effective way, like almost every personal adversary kind of gets in, threatens to derail you right in the middle of your marriage, right in the middle of your parenting, right in the middle of your career, right in the middle of your relationship with God, with this uncanny insight into your personality, your vulnerabilities, the things that can get you to trip up. So this phrase, noonday devil, was used to personify this destructive force for a really long time. And the more academic word that is used to refer to this, which has come in and out of use through the last 2,000 years, but has resurfaced recently, is the word acedia. Another formal way, in other words, of referring to the noonday devil is this word acedia. The root of the word acedia means lack of care. It's very likely that you've never heard the word acedia. If you haven't read the writings of early monks or you haven't read recent information about uh, modern psychology and mental health, you would not have heard of this word. But if you've read the old monks and if you've read some of the recent stuff on mental health, they're talking about this word again, this word acedia. I think we need to know this word for two big reasons. The first is we all, maybe not all, most of us experience acedia in some form or fashion at some time, as apathy, as sadness, as restlessness, as a kind of depression. And the second reason I think we need to know this word is because throughout history, Christians have linked the destructive experience of acedia to an underdeveloped experience of the resurrection. Let me say that one again. Throughout history, Christians have linked this experience of acedia with an underdeveloped experience of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the resurrection has something to say to us if we are caught in the middle, if we're stuck in the struggle of the middle. When we are caught in the struggle of the middle, when we're experiencing acedia, when the noonday devil shows up, we need to see things through the lens of the resurrection. Okay? Our next step must be informed by the truth of the resurrection. That's the only way out of this. Okay? So what is acedia? Well, a clear, crystal clear definition is very elusive because it's changed throughout 2,000 years. Essentially, it is a lack of or inability to care. 
ancient monks saw ascetia expressed in two ways. This is helpful. For some, instead of staying in their cells and praying the midday prayers, they would leave their cell. They would go do something new, go do something else, go do something more exciting. Bored by the monotony of the routine in the middle of the day, they would give in to this anything is better than this kind of thinking, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence kind of thinking, and they would leave. For others experiencing the same thing, instead of staying in their cells and praying the midday prayers, they just fall asleep. (laughs) They just fall asleep. So for some, this lack of care or apathy or sadness would show up as an inability to focus, as constant busyness, as running off to the next thing. For others, the very same lack of care, apathy, sadness would look more like exhaustion. It'd feel more like boredom, like a lack of energy, just checking out. So I'm, I'm going to summarize what I've been saying. Most experience acedia in the middle of the day or in the middle of whatever. Some want to stay busy in light of that feeling or presence. Others want to take a nap. They want to shut it out. Do you see either of those patterns or tendencies in your own life? Let me take each one of those for just a couple of minutes. So one is the stay busy response. Rather than sticking with it, rather than sticking with a challenging task, sticking with a challenging relationship, sticking with a spiritual issue that is challenging, staying in a painful situation, are you apt to leave? To do something new? To do something different? To find someone new? Someone different? To embrace a new group? A new spiritual experience? One author I read said that ascedia manifests itself in our culture as restless boredom, frantic escapism, and commitment phobia. (laughs) Restless boredom, frantic escapism, commitment phobia. That at the root of our busyness may be a lack of care. A lack of care. In other words, maybe our being pulled in so many different directions is a sign that there's no deep, strong sense of guiding purpose here. There's no powerful core. There's this one thing that matters so much. It brings focus. It brings momentum. And this deep meaning, this deep sense of meaning that keeps us focused and keeps us motivated. In other words, busyness can look like you just care about so many things. Some say This crazy busyness is a sign that there actually is a lack of one guiding, true, core, meaningful purpose that you care, really really care about. Weeks ago, during the Overflow series, Melissa asked us to identify barriers to the spirit-filled life, and many of you identified busyness as a barrier to a spirit-filled life. An overwhelming schedule, somebody wrote, too many distractions, Difficulty in managing my time, too many commitments. There's probably a whole lot of factors that lead to our feeling like we've got too much going on. But I wonder if your reason for feeling that way is related to acedia. Maybe this busyness that characterizes your life is really a thinly veiled restlessness of soul. Maybe you just got to stay busy. And then there's the nap response, the 
The second response, the nap response. Core issue, exactly the same. Expression, very different. Rather than sticking with a challenge or pressing through a difficult season of life, are you tempted to just check out? Just check out. Just watch TV. Just go to sleep. Some of you responded to Melissa's question several weeks ago by naming apathy as your main barrier to the spirit-filled life. I just don't care. One person wrote, I feel completely alone. I am done trying. What's the point? I can't keep going. I see acts of love, but I don't feel love. Some see acedia showing up in our lives as self-defeating thoughts, as a kind of depression or despair or debilitating sadness. The Desert Father said acedia was what Paul was referring to when he talks about worldly sorrow in his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians. This is what Paul writes. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's all good. Godly sorrow, repentance is in front of me, right? I mean, it it leads to repentance and then leads to salvation and there's no regret. It's all good. But then Paul says, there's this worldly sorrow and that leads to death. So Paul's referring to this sorrow that doesn't lead to change. Instead, it's like a paralyzing fear. The father's called that acedia. The desert father said, he's talking about acedia. We, we felt that. We call it acedia. Another example is when John records Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3, you're familiar with this. This is when Christ says to the church, I know your works. They're neither hot or cold. And because they're neither hot nor cold, I wish they were hot or cold, but because they are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I want to spew you out of my mouth. In other words, strong devotion to God, Jesus can work with that. Passionate rebellion against God, Jesus can work with that. But this apathy, this lack of care, Jesus has really strong language For that, that is a dangerous place to be in. The Desert Fathers say, that's acedia. We've felt that. We call it acedia. That's the noonday devil. And then one more example. Uh, From Jesus, the night he was betrayed, they have the Last Supper together. This is recorded in Luke 22 and other places. But this phrase comes out of Luke 22. Luke writes, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives as usual, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt and prayed. Here's what he prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to his disciples and he found them asleep. Here's the key phrase, exhausted with sorrow. Exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. Early monks recognized acedia as that special kind of exhaustion that comes from overwhelming sorrow. 
So acedia is this kind of apathy, this kind of loss of care. In our culture, it's like a deep sadness that disguises itself potentially as busyness, as constant movement. I'm always changing the channels. I cannot sit still. Or it may show up as this exhaustion that is actually more spiritual than physical. Worldly sorrow, to quote Paul, exhaustion from sorrow, Luke telling the story of Jesus, this lukewarm bleh that we read about in John's revelation. Still with me? Okay. Why does this matter? The point of the desert fathers identifying acedia, naming it, personifying it as the noonday devil is primarily, friends, to say this. This exists. This is a thing. Christians experience this. We've encountered this in the desert. We know what this feels like, along with greed and lust and pride and anger. There's also this thing we've noticed. We call it acedia, and it's this apathy that kind of settles in around noon. It's this lack of care that seems to affect our hearts right in the middle of the struggle. And these experts of the spiritual life point it out, not to condemn us, but to warn us, and then to say they want to make sure that we recognize that the resurrection has something to say to this, right? The resurrection addresses this. The resurrection makes a difference with this. You've probably heard that the resurrection makes a difference at the beginning You can have a new start because of the resurrection. We preach that almost every Easter, right? You know resurrection makes a difference at the beginning. You probably have heard that resurrection is a game changer when you die. Yes, it is, right? It totally changes things at the end. Did you know that resurrection is also a major uh, influencer in the middle? Resurrection has something to say right in the middle. That's what this sermon is about. The power of the resurrection to impact you in the struggle of the middle when you want to bail out, when you just want to take a nap, resurrection, resurrection says this. Remember, Christ has triumphed over this too. He's triumphed over this. The power of the resurrection, the power that conquered death, it's more powerful than that lack of care that threatens to drag you down in the middle of the day. It is more powerful than the sense of apathy you're feeling towards God right now. The sense of apathy you're feeling towards your family right now. The sense of apathy that you're feeling about your work right now that might show up right in the middle of your life. We hear from the author of Psalm 91, we hear from the Apostle Paul, we hear from the desert fathers and mothers about this deadness that seeps into the heart of the believer right in the struggle of the middle. And then we also hear the the good news of the resurrection that proclaims to the heart that feels dead, you will live again. That's the message. Resurrection speaks life. Resurrection sparks joy. Right where you don't expect it, in the midst of that dead apathy, it says you can't even feel right now. But there is a reality that is more powerful than your numbness. It is the power that raised Christ from the dead. It's called resurrection. 
right? It has something to say to that. Resurrection says, even though this situation looks grim, there is more to your situation or to your story than just this situation. There is a grand narrative, and you're invited to find your narrative as part of that. Resurrection says, you may not feel happy right now, but you can know joy. You can experience real joy in the middle of difficult circumstances. Life is more than your circumstances. Do you want to know why? Because of the resurrection, right? So this sparks joy in us. When the noonday devil comes around and says, none of this matters. None of this matters. None of this will change. You are so deep into the middle of this struggle. You should just quit. You are so deep into the woods of this difficulty, you should just leave. You're so deep into the middle of this pain, you should just self-medicate. You don't have to give in. Instead, you can choose joy. You can choose joy over acedia. You can. You can choose joy over acedia. When the noonday devil comes around, don't be discouraged and don't be surprised. Look at your watch and go, oh, yep, you're right on time. It's about noon right? Kind of expected you here. This is when you typically show up, right? And then fix the eyes of your heart on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And endure it. Choose joy over acedia. Because of the resurrection, there is a joy that is possible even in the midst of struggle. When resurrection is the lens through which we see life, we don't have to bail out in hard times or self-medicate in hard times. We have a third option. We can endure through hard times, oh, and with joy at the same time, right? We can, now I'm not talking about the silly giddiness. I'm not talking about you got to have a smile on your face. I'm talking about something way more authentic than that. We're not talking about pretending. We're talking about straight up, super difficult, actually painful reality in which you can experience a real joy. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why, right? It's part of what it means to live in light of the resurrection, friends. That's what it looks like to triumph. Whew, that guy's life is getting rocked. He must be miserable. But he's got some sort of unconquerable joy. He is triumphing. He is triumphing in the midst of a struggle. All right, let me end with a really quick story. Fourth century Christian named John Cassian visited these monks in the desert. He's the one that we have to thank for collecting so many of their writings and passing them down. And he tells a story about monks who dug their own graves. Monks digging their own graves. And that phrase, digging their own graves, has a totally different connotation now than it did for them then. Cassian tells a story about monks who every night before they go to bed, they walk out into the desert to their someday grave site and they scoop just one scoop of dirt out of their grave site. And he says they do this as a way of mocking the demons who have assaulted them at midday. I love that. Right? I love that. I am digging my grave one scoop at a time as a way of saying, yeah, guess what? I'm still here. You didn't take me down. You threatened me to quit. I maybe even failed, but I'm back, and I'm pressing forward, and I'm persevering, and I got joy in my heart. You said this was all meaningless. It was going to end in death, and I'm facing that reality right now with joy in my heart. 
and I am mocking you who have assaulted me in the middle of the day. You can't take me down. I've got a joy that cannot be conquered because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Cassian ends by saying, and they found sweet rest in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. I pray, God, for people who are in the middle of it right now. Can't imagine this. They can't get their minds to imagine it. I pray you'd fill their souls with joy. I pray for a spark of hope. I pray for a pervading sense that there is purpose here. There is meaning here. They are seen and known by the living God. Nothing will overcome them because you have overcome the world. Fill us with this joy, Lord. Because of your resurrection, may we see these challenges differently. Because of the resurrection, may our next step be clear. And may we find sweet rest in you. In the name of Christ, amen.